0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. Um, happy Father's Day. I want to say that to those of you who are fathers in the room. Happy Father's Day. I'm glad that you're spending your Father's Day Sunday morning gathered with the church. There's no better place to be. And so, happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers, um, expecting fathers. Also know that Father's Day can be a, a day that is uh, complex for for many. My my dad lost his father at a very young age, and so I even remember um, kind of watching my dad kind of struggle with the complexities of Father's Day. As, where it also was kind of mixed with some mourning and some grief of who was missing. Or and, I, and so we're aware of that as well. And so if that's you, just want you to know that we love you and are thinking about you today. And and there's so much grace in the gospel for us as followers of Jesus that. When we are in moments of celebration or moments of mourning, we know that Christ is with us and keeping us and securing us and fueling us by his grace. And so I just want to say welcome, glad that you're here. Um, if you were with us on Mother's Day, uh, we were kicking off this sermon series that we're in in Titus called a healthy church in a hectic world. And so it kind of joked, I said, happy Mother's Day, moms, you get a sermon on elders, because that's where we were in Titus chapter one, talking about elders in the church. Well, dads, happy Father's Day. We're in Titus three toward the end, and you get a sermon on division and disunity in the church. So um, it's going to be good, good stuff that we have today. No, all kidding aside, our text this morning is really important. As we've been continuing on this renewal journey, studying Titus, looking at what it might look like for us to experience corporate renewal, trying to be reminded of the basics of what is a healthy church, what matters most in the church. We've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to Titus. He's left Titus in Crete. Uh, You can can read about Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. and, And we know that Titus is left in Crete to put the churches in order. In other words, to establish them so that they would be healthy, vibrant witnesses of Jesus, his gospel, and his coming again in the world he shows us what matters most in the church. And this morning we are getting toward the end of Titus and we see Paul gives one final charge to Titus. And the final charge is to remind him that unity matters in the church. If the church is going to be healthy, if it's going to be a witness to Jesus in the world, the church must prioritize unity. It must one enjoy the unity that we've been given in Christ and two protect the unity that we've been given in Christ. So that's kind of the thesis of the sermon. A healthy church is a church that enjoys and protects the unity that we've been given in Christ. This also means that we must be actively putting off the things that divide us. Now, if you will remember where we began this sermon series, really the occasion of this letter is that there were these, what Paul calls, false teachers that were invading the churches in Crete. And they were distracting and dividing these young churches. And, and uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, uh, Paul calls them insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, who he says are upsetting entire families because they are teaching for, sh- for shameful gain. And so if you remember, this is where we began. And this is why Paul says that uh, Titus needs to appoint elders, qualified men who can lead the church. And in uh, Titus 1, verse 9, he says elders are to teach sound doctrine. And protect it and refute those who, um, who disregard sound doctrine. And then from Titus 2 verse 1, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. All the way through chapter 3 verse 7 where we ended last week, he's unpacking for us what sound doctrine is. It's belief in Jesus that is met with living out the gospel. So it's gospel belief and gospel behavior. And so we looked at that for men, older and younger, women, older and younger. Uh, How we work matters. Our witness in the world matters. Holy lives, missional lives. This is sound doctrine. And then as we get to the end of this letter, Paul circles back to where he began, and he gives one final charge to Titus, circles back to these dividers, these empty talkers, and he tells Titus to steer clear of divisive issues And deal with divisive people. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come to you now. We enter into a time of learning from your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. That you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. You'd open our hearts to receive encouragement from you. That we would receive clarity from you. That we would receive correction from you, where it needed. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for your commitment to us. Lord, you haven't abandoned us. You haven't left us. You've put your spirit within us. You've given us your word as your guide, and your gospel of grace is sufficient for us. And so I pray this morning that you would stir up our affections for you, that you would continue to knit us together in unity as a local church. Be with us in our midst this morning. Teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 8. Titus 3, verse 8. He says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If you are a Bible underliner, underline devote themselves to good works. This is what is essential to Paul, that the church would be devoted because of Jesus and because of the grace of Jesus in which we have received that we would be devoted to being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. So he's saying, insist on these things. These things are excellent and profitable for people, Paul says. Now, it's interesting, the word people that he uses here in the Greek is a generic word for all people. So he's not just saying that, it's, that these words are profitable for people in the church. He's saying when the church is obedient to these essential things of sound doctrine, that's profitable for all the people of the world. Do you see that? A healthy church is to be a blessing to the whole world as it lives out the essential things. And so what Paul is doing in verse 8 as he transitions from uh, 8 into verse 9 is he's setting up kind of a compare and contrast argument here between what is profitable and what is not profitable. What is he calls later worthless and unprofitable? And he's saying, I want you, Titus, to put your foot down. I want you to take a stand on these things. What things? is he talking about? Well, all of the essential things that he's already addressed so far in chapter 2, one through 3.7. This is what we've been looking at for the last four, five weeks. These things are excellent and profitable. In other words, this is essential doctrine. These are essential matters of discipleship that we are to be laser focused on. These are the matters of most importance in the church. A healthy church, what he's already shown us, centered on Jesus and his saving work in our lives, living out our identity in Christ as men and women and workers, growing in holiness and loving the world with a missionary posture. He's saying this is the essential stuff that you need to put your foot down and stand on and teach. In other words, he's saying insist on the essential things staying essential in the church. You see that? That's the first principle. And then he goes on in verse 9, and he's going to warn Titus to avoid some specific non-essential things that are divisive and distracting to the essential things for the church. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law For they are unprofitable and worthless. Here's the principle. As Jesus' church, as his body, as his representative people in the world, ambassadors of his kingdom, we need to steer clear of divisive issues that distract us from our core mission. We need to steer clear of divisive issues that distract us from our core mission. Um, earlier this week, Josh sent me a, an article that outlines what the author called six fault lines that are, are fracturing points that are dividing the American church right now. And it was a really fascinating article. It was really clarifying, actually. It actually gave some language, some nomenclature to kind of what I've been feeling, even as a pastor. Uh, I lead our Redeemer network of churches. And so as i leading a network of churches and kind of seeing these, these fault lines, these dividing uh, lines in the church. And, and the article talked about how these fault lines have grown bigger from 2016 to 2020. And, and what he does is he really kind of says, based on these six fault lines, if anyone's interested in this article, I'll share it with you. But um, he says what, what's happened is Christians are getting divided into kind of six categories. So he has like number one Christians, number two Christians, number three, number four, number five, number six. It's, you know, if you've been way into the Enneagram, you could think maybe it's like Enneagram for churches. You know, it's like just give you a number to kind of help you understand the kind of person. It's not gospel truth at all. But it's, it's a really fascinating article. And um, this, here was the sad conclusion of the article, though. It's that uh, it, it was this. It's that that um, it is growing increasingly harder and harder for these different kinds of Christians to be in fellowship with one another due to the stances that they are taking on both cultural and political issues, and then on finer points of theology. So, not essential doctrines, but final points of theology. An the article is saying, "Look, it's just getting harder and harder. Like number one, Christians because of these dividing lines in culture or politics." Uh, cannot be in fellowship with number six Christians or number five, and even it's getting harder and harder for them to like, be in fellowship with like twos and fours because of these hardline stances that we're taking on cultural, political issues, and finer points of theology. He so, said, you know, people are leaving churches over it, um, churches are splitting, denominations are even being threatened over these issues. And it's really sad to watch. And as I think about this, I think and it must be grieving to the heart of our Lord Jesus. That that all of these divisions and dissensions are happening in the church. Here's what Titus 3.9 reminds us of. It reminds us that that, uh, division, dissensions, disunity in the church isn't new or novel to us right now. Right? (laughs) I mean, this has been going on even since the first century church. It's a real temptation for the church in every time and generation to want to actually kind of Look, turn inward and divide and make one another our enemy. I think it's a, a key ploy of our enemy Satan who loves to divide and destroy and tear down what Christ gave his life to unify and build up. I think it's a real temptation in each one of our own hearts in our fallen nature, to whether it be because of self-righteousness or elitism or whatever it might be to want to divide and segment ourselves from one another. But here's also what the text is going to go on to remind us, is that the same solution and the same good news is available to us that was available to the early church. And Paul tells Titus, he's saying, listen, just be ready for this in your ministry. Be ready and avoid it. Avoid divisions. Avoid foolish controversies. Avoid dissensions. Avoid arguments and quarrels about finer points of theology. Just avoid all of that stuff. In fact, we get a similar verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. If you want to flip over there, do it real quick. Flip over 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Um, uh, Timothy was a similar kind of leader to Titus. And Titus is left in Crete to strengthen the churches and put them in order. Timothy is left in Ephesus to do the same kind of work, to strengthen the church, put them in order around the gospel and around gospel mission. And look at what Paul says to Timothy, Titus 1, 3 and 4. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Here's what he's talking about when he says not to teach different doctrine. Don't teach something that is um, uh, that, that isn't consistent with the core gospel message, right? So that would be like a this was you think of the letter to Galatians, like a gospel plus message. Like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again, and he's coming again. And you're saved by his grace, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. So, so he's saying that like, like nothing other than the core gospel message. But look at the second thing he says. This is interesting. Look at verse 4. So I left you in Ephesus. Charge persons not to teach a different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so what Paul is saying is that there's another way that we can get doctrine wrong. It's not just by having false doctrine. It's by devoting ourselves to speculation and myths and finer points. of In other words, secondary issues. We make secondary issues essential issues, and we've gotten doctrine wrong. He's saying don't do it. Avoid it. You see, this is what Paul is addressing in Titus 3.9. And in the case of the first century church... It was arguments and divisions and debates over issues of the law, over genealogies. By the way, he's not talking about like Ancestry.com stuff here. So like if you've been in the 23andMe and you've been tracing your family history, you're okay. All right, you're off the hook. You're, you're good. You can keep doing that. That's fun. Uh, and that's not what he's talking about. When he's talking about genealogies, what was happening was that there was like these kind of worthless speculations about like, well, I'm kind of, you know, certain people in the, in the early churches that were like in the bloodlines of specific old, prominent Old Testament figures. And like maybe how that might elevate them and this and that. That's what he's talking about. Like stop dividing the church over stupid stuff. That's basically what he's saying. Stuff that's worthless and unprofitable. Then he says uh, they were also divided over dissensions. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that, that maybe uh, in the early church, they, they also had their, their kind of sorts of issues, uh, issues of preference or maybe it was easy to argue over those kinds of things, and he's saying, "Stop doing it, you know, like stop dividing yourselves over worship style preferences, right?" I mean, how many of you have heard of the church split over carpet colors? Anybody? That's why we put wood floors here, uh, <laughs> proactively, because we know our hearts are prone to division. I mean, I'm sure they had their fair share of that kind of preferential stuff. So finer points of theology, self righteousness, and kind of you know elitism. To, you know, arguing over preferences, and Paul makes it clear. He says the church should steer clear of that kind of non-essential stuff. He, in fact, he's even saying we ought to have an aversion to it. Like, if you've ever seen a kid with, like, a food aversion, like, you just put it near them, and they're like, you know, it's <laughs> like, we should have an aversion to that kind of stuff, like, in that kind of way. Why? So that the church will stay laser-focused on essential doctrine. And to Paul, it's become clear in our study of Titus and the study of the rest of the New Testament that to Paul, the essential doctrine that we are supposed to be laser-focused on is the gospel message, it's gospel living in everyday life, and gospel mission. But it seems that rather than steering clear of divisive, non-essential issues, rather than having a kind of aversion to those issues when they come up, That there are some who are drawn to them. That there are some Christians who seem to kind of put non-essential issues in the Google Maps of their heart and they make them the destination for the Christian life. Whether it be finer points of theology or it be debates about cultural issues or, or, or issues in Christian subculture or denominationalism, whatever it might be. Paul is telling Titus, stop it. Don't let people do it. You stay out of it. Avoid these things. Don't let the churches fall prey to this kind of division and disunity. He says they are unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable in terms of the gospel reaching more people. Instead of the gospel reaching more people, when we get focused on these things, instead it derails the mission and it can tarnish our witness as the world watches us fight and bicker. Isn't that sad? And then he says it's worthless. Worthless in terms of these things don't honor Christ. They don't bring glory and honor to Christ. Instead, they grieve his heart. The one who prayed that his church would be one. The one who gave up his own life and had his own body torn apart so that dividing walls of hostility amongst us and between us could be torn down. Now, I know that some of you are maybe thinking, hey, yeah, Jordan, but, right? <laughs> um, yeah, but aren't, aren't, you know, okay, I'm with you. Like, maybe some of those things aren't essential, but they're still important, right? Like, like well, what do we do then? Like, how do we, how do we deal with kind of some of the, these important, um, you know, secondary uh, issues of theology? How do we, what, what do we do? How, do? how do we respond to maybe some of these, you know, not essential, but still important issues of politics and culture, that impact the church? What what do we do here? Listen, I want to just do, give you two pastoral words. Two pastoral words on this. Number one, depending on who you are, you might kind of respond to these issues differently. And so for some of you, number one, if your interest in these issues, finer points of theology or cultural and political issues, if your interest in those is birthed out of concern for the church, like you're concerned about the church, here's the word I want to give you. Will you let your pastors worry about those things? Like, let your pastors worry about these issues and and how they're impacting and affecting the church. If you aren't a called pastor, you have not been charged by God to take interest in protecting and defending the church. Like, you haven't been tasked with that. What you've been tasked with is being faithful to what Jesus has put right in front of you. The people that Jesus has put in your household are under your care. You've been uh, tasked with being a faithful witness of Christ where you live and where you work. That's what you've been tasked with. So let your pastors worry about the issues and how they're dividing the church. That's what they will stand before God for. Let them worry about those issues. What we don't need in the church is a bunch of people who haven't been tasked with uh, protecting the church, watchdogging, and refereeing. Is that what we need? We need people playing their role, using their gifts to build up and encourage and strengthen the church on its mission in Jesus. Not calling fouls and putting people in penalty boxes. And then there's others of you, your interest, your, your, your interest in these issues of theology or of culture, it's, for you it's maybe birthed more out of curiosity. It's not so much concern it's more bird out of curiosity, and if that's you, I just want, I want you to know, like, I love that. Like, we, we want this church to be a, a church of people learning and growing. Like, I was working out at my gym the other day, and I was talking to this guy about Redeemer. And he was like, what kind of church is Redeemer? And we were kind of talking and sharing, and he, and he was like, "Yeah, hey, you guys are, sounds like you guys are like a, I was like, yeah, we preach books to the Bible. He was like, sounds like you guys are like a theological church. He was like, yeah, theology matters. Like, we want people to be growing in the Bible, and in theology, and maturing. Like, we love that. And so my word to you would be just, like, grow in those things, your curiosity about theology, your curiosity about Christ and culture. Grow in those things in community in the local church. Like, bring all of that into submission to your pastors and to your leaders in the church. Like, don't learn from YouTube and podcasts And kind of form your opinions outside of the church and then judge the church based upon what those other people are saying and what the church isn't or is or isn't saying. Bring your learning inside the church. Learn from men and women in this church. Let's learn theology together in community. Let's talk about Christ and culture together in community. So bring all of that. Bring your curiosity into community. I think that's a really, really good sign. And I think this is the posture playing your role, letting your pastors protect and defend the church, learning in community, talking these things out in community. This is the posture in which promotes unity. It promotes charity. It helps us keep essential things essential while navigating non-essential things in a healthy, Christ-honoring way. And so again, the principle, we are to steer clear of divisive issues that will distract us from our common mission. That Christ has given us. And then we have verse 10. Then Paul makes sure that we understand that it's not just divisive issues that we need to avoid, but that we need to be aware of divisive people. Divisive people. And he gives Titus some instructions in verse 10 for how to deal with divisive people. Here's the principle. Leaders are to deal with divisive people in a way that both promotes the gospel and protects the church from division. Look at verse 10. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Again, the principle. Leaders are to deal with divisive people in a way that both promotes the gospel and protects the church. From division. And so, what Paul is saying is that that the people in verse 10 are actively stirring up the things in verse 9. Listen, there are people among churches who are actively trying to divide the church. Now, here has been my experience. Sometimes these people are what the Bible calls wolves, like they're intentionally trying to divide the church. But my experience has actually been that most of the time, divisive people are just being divisive unintentionally. (laughs) It's unintentional. It's not intentional. Um, In other words, they're not aware that what they're doing is actually really more harmful than helpful. Like generally, usually, they are just kind of immature disciples or immature in character. That's usually what's going on. And so that's why Paul says that they need to be warned or corrected even do it once or twice. Like in other words, there's great opportunity for growth and grace in the church when sometimes we get too we get too far out ahead of ourselves or we kind of come in on an issue way too hot <laughs> or way too strong that hurts other people or tears the church apart. He says there's room for grace and growth. I remember when I was doing college ministry, I did college ministry for several years and we had some of our college students who were like learning theology for the first time. And I remember as some of them started learning theology for the first time, it was like it was the most important thing. And they were causing all these issues or like debating one another over theology. And, and what I would used to do, especially with some of the guys, I would enter in with them. And I would just say, hey, look, man, you're not allowed to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism again until you share the gospel with one non-Christian. All right? Deal. Deal, all right. If I hear you talking about it again, you can't be a leader in our ministry anymore unless you shared the gospel with somebody on campus who doesn't know Jesus. What did I do? I was able to enter in and remind them of what is most essential. <laughs> don't make non-essential things essential. Go love people and share the gospel. Serve the church and worship Jesus. And stop fighting over this stuff you don't really know anything about. In other words, you're immature, man. Your character hasn't caught up to your new competency that you've learned. You're immature, And this is what Paul is saying. The advice, the exhortation that he gives is actually really beautiful, if you think about it. When you read it at first, it might seem like a kind of a harsh warning, but it truly comes from a heart of love. What he's saying is he's saying, enter in with divisive people. He's telling Titus to do that, and there's principles for church leadership here: is to enter in with divisive people, recognizing that more than likely they're just kind of puffed up on some pride. Maybe they read one book and they think they're an expert now, or they listen to a podcast and now they're ready to be teachers, or their eyes have been opened to a particular sin in their life or a particular injustice in the world, and now they're ready to call out all the sins and all the injustices in the world. You know, it's like storming hell with a water gun. <laughs> You're like, all right, I've, I've seen it now and I'm ready to take it down. And really what they need is they need a mature, qualified leader, usually a pastor or maybe a spiritual mother or a spiritual father to come alongside them to warn them, to correct them, to love them. And the hope is that this kind of posture within the church will solve about 90% of the issues of divisive people. And my experience has been that when elders and leaders in the church do their job, when they do this, it's actually really a beautiful gospel-promoting reality. It's really beautiful. Gives someone the opportunity to go, oh, man, really? Oh, I didn't realize that that's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. You know, and, and, and we get to repent and forgive and love and grow and grow up in grace. But he says, but there are some, it's a smaller percentage that really are wolves. They're self-condemned, meaning they don't really love Jesus. They don't really love the church. They're just using the church as their playground to sow division and to hurt people. And if that's who they are, if that's who they prove to be, he says, after warning them once and twice, have nothing more to do with them knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. You see, this is the hard but important work that church leaders must do. Why? Because there are people who are catching others up in division, and they're pulling them away from Jesus and away from one another and away from our common mission. And so here's, again, one more time, the principle. Leaders are to deal with divisive people in a way that promotes the gospel, opportunities for growth and grace, and protects the church. Now, Just a bit of kind of of an aside as we get ready to land the plane here. I want to just tell you, as a pastor, like what makes this principle that we just talked about, what leaders in the church are supposed to do protect the unity, warn divisive people, correct them, or, or move them on. Let me tell you what makes this increasingly difficult right now. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that the job of elders is to not only teach sound doctrine, but defend it, right? So in other words, pastors are supposed to be a formative voice in your life. That's why you need pastors. That's the one, of the one of the primary responsibilities of pastors, to be a formative voice in your life, helping kind of keep you anchored in truth, learning, growing up in grace, helping keep the church unified and, and moving on its common mission. But that work is like really harder than it should be right now. Like it's it may be harder than it's ever been right now, and it's because of the onslaught of voices that the average person takes in. All right, um, I don't know if you, you you might not know this, but statistics say that that the average person, so so you, all right, that you take in anywhere between four to ten thousand ads each day. You realize that four to ten thousand messages kind of coming at you every day, whether it be from your phone or from you know, radio ads or billboards that you drive by or uh, commercials, whatever it is, is, four to 10,000 per day messages that are kind of coming at you, that are, that are trying to speak to you and direct you and lead you. I remember seeing an ad one time on uh, driving down the interstate and, and uh, seeing an ad. It was, I don't remember if it was Best Buy or something, but it was like this. Remember when plasma TVs first came out? And it was like something like a, you know, Best Buy, Plasma TV, like change your life, you know? I was like, really? Like, like, have you ever heard that testimony? Like, my life was a wreck. My marriage was on the rocks. Um, you know, I was just struggling. And I bought that Plasma TV. Changed my life. I mean, like four to 10,000 of these a day. And these aren't all just commercial ads trying to sell you a product. More and more of them are becoming ideological ads, Someone trying to get you to listen to their podcast or click on their video. And by the way, the more that you listen, the more you click, the more money that these people make. Remember Titus talked about they're teaching these things out of shameful gain. It's not about the church being built up and strengthened. There's a lot of information that's coming at you. And it's all being curated based upon your previous clicks. So your interests and your biases are getting reinforced in an echo chamber. A lot of information, a lot of formation that's happening in your life on an everyday basis. In in other words, let me say it this way. If it was only people inside of our church who were promoting divisive, non-essential issues and were dividing us from one another, it would be easy or easier to keep the church unified. Right? Because we, like, know who they are. (laughs) Like, know where they sit on Sunday and where they live. Like, I probably would have their phone number. But it's not. Do you see what I'm saying? There are thousands of divisive voices that are trying to pull you apart based on non-essential issues. And so how will we stay a unified church? How will we stay a healthy church in a hectic, hostile, divided world that's pointing to the reconciling grace of Jesus? Well, here's what it will take. Listen, hear me. It will take a deep, deep conviction in your heart in mind that unity matters. In other words, that unity is an essential. It's, an assen- it's not a nice bonus added on like, hey, I like the preaching at that church and the music's all right and the programs are good. Eh, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe if it's unified, that'd be a good thing. No, no. It's essential. It is essential doctrine. Unity in the church. In fact, just turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians. This was Paul's paradigm. When you read the New Testament, it's so clear that as he is teaching essential doctrine to these new churches and he is writing them letters to reinforce essential doctrine. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It is so clear that we have to have a deep sense of conviction that unity is essential, it is a gospel essential. In Ephesians chapter 2, in this text, Paul is specifically talking about an ethnic d- divide between Jews and Gentiles. But it's also more than this. It's Paul uh, speaking to Jesus' work in the gospel to take sinners like you and me who are prone to division. It's God's ability to take sinners like you and me who are prone to hatred and elitism and self-righteousness and racism. People who, like you and me, who like, can't even get along in our families. Like, we can't even keep unity in our marriages and with our in laws, people like us, who can't keep in unity with our neighbors because of where they park their cars and it annoys us. Like, writing to people like us to remind us, broken sinners like us who are born into hostility, born into relational sin, born into hatred and malice, how Jesus has come and he's taken all of our sin upon himself, not only to reconcile us to God first and foremost, but to reconcile us with one another and to create a new people in the place of a hostile people, a new humanity in place of a hostile humanity who despite all of our differences and distinctions and perspectives experience gospel unity in him, for him, from him, and by him. Look at what he says. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. Man, in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God. So, all peoples, Jews and all Gentiles, all peoples reconciled together in God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility between us. That's what he's talking about. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, or we all, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, he's saying this has always been God's plan, to reconcile for himself a unified people who would display his glory in the world. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen, this is what Jesus has done. Paul's words in Titus chapter 3 verse 9 through 11 where he says avoid divisions. It's not just a moralism thing. He's not just saying, hey, division bad, unity good be good. It's not just a moralism thing. It's a a Jesus is better thing. It's a why would you settle for a life of division and disunity and arguments and quarreling when in Christ he's already purchased this for you. Enjoy it. Receive it. Walk in it. The gospel, it's it's a message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the issue that we ought to be about. Gospel reconciliation Reconcile to God, reconcile to one another, reconcilers, ministries of, the ministry of reconciliation in the world. That's the issue, not these other things. Jesus is the unifier. He's the person who's worthy of our ear, worthy of our affection, worthy of our mind's attention, worthy of our energy, not these other people and these other voices. Jesus is the one. He's the issue. He's the person. And in light of all of this, in light of the gospel, what are, what are we to do? How are we to live? Look, flip over Ephesians 4. Paul's not done on this, by the way. (laughs) It's an essential. Unity is an essential. Flip over Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. What's the calling? We just read it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why would we need those things? Because we're a fellowship of difference. That's why. We've been called together from different places and different backgrounds and and different sin struggles and different uh, ethnicities, different preferences, into one fellowship. And so we need humility and gentleness and patience and to bear with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope, It belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, unity isn't just a nice bonus in the church. It is essential. If you are in Christ, to maintain unity and to be eager to maintain unity is an act of worship toward God. It's how we worship Him. It's critical to our mission and our witness. Those with whom we might disagree on non-essential issues, those with whom we might share a different perspective on culture, uh, those who come from different backgrounds, Paul is saying it is an honor, it is a privilege, it is a joy to share with them in the fellowship of the Spirit and the bond of peace that unites us. It's a joy. Look around the room. Just really, just activity here. Just look around the room. Just look around, be awkward, embrace it. You're awkward anyway. <laughs> this is a room of people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities, different income statuses, different interests, different perspectives, different sin struggles, different bodily ailments, different politics. One thing in common, Christ Jesus crucified for me, risen for me, coming again for me. Isn't that beautiful? The church, a fellowship of difference, a diverse family drawn together by the Spirit of God who's alive, united by the blood of Jesus. I love that picture Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says we're being built into Christ Jesus who is the cornerstone into a spiritual house, a dwelling place of God. It's the picture of like we are being mortared together by the blood of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. What a gift it is to have our sins forgiven, have our hostility disarmed. What a gift it is to be drawn into fellowship with one another from all of these different places. Listen, here's the final word. In this current culture of hostility, unity is not a loud message. Like, it fails to shock. It fails to create outrage. You know, it's not a very clickable message. It's not a very tweetable message. It's actually very subtle. Unity in the church It's actually very subversive. But when a church is walking in unity, when it's eager to maintain it, when it's motivated toward unity and reconciliation by the saving grace of Jesus in our own lives, it carries with it something powerful. It carries with it the subversive but powerful wind of the Holy Spirit. The church that's healthy and unified because of the saving, reconciling grace of Jesus in our lives, it's like this strong gospel current in a city that just starts to pull in people from all different kinds of places. Come on in. Come and see. Come experience the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Be restored and reconciled to God. Come experience fellowship with God with one another. May we, church, be eager to maintain the unity that Christ has purchased. May we avoid divisions. May we have a growing aversion to them. May we turn down the noise of divisive people and divisive messages in our lives. And may we be laser-focused on Christ, on his mission, on his glory. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be together, to worship you together, to pause all of our busy lives, our different lives, and come together around you to celebrate your grace, to be reminded of the truth of who you are, what you've done for us, to remember ultimate reality, and that's that you are coming again. And when you come again, all tribes, tongues, and nations will bow at your feet, and we will enjoy you for all time and eternity. What a day. Come, Lord Jesus. And until that day, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be soft hearted people of grace, that we would avoid divisions and quarrels, that we would repent of self-righteousness and elitism, whatever it is that might turn us from one another, that we would, Lord, stay unified in the essentials. Help us, Jesus, by your spirit and for your glory, that this church would be a strong current of transformative grace, that there would be a powerful wind of the spirit here because of the unity that is here. And that it would be a, a, a place that is transformative, that draws people in, that they would come and know the saving grace of Jesus, where sins are forgiven and restoration with God is a reality. God, help us to repent of where we have been divisive. God, help us to enjoy unity and seek it and maintain it. Help us to protect the church from division. God, give our leaders and our elders wisdom and clarity. God, give us courage. We love you, Jesus. We want to honor you. As we respond now, I pray, Lord, that you would move in our midst, that you would strengthen us, you would encourage us, you would nourish us, and would you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.